Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to come together to worship you through the study of your word. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would meet us here in this place, that you would provide for us, that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that are moved deeply to follow you and to pursue hope in the midst of darkness. We pray all of this um, in your name. Amen. The title of our sermon tonight is Finding Hope in the Dark. Uh, For those of you who may not be aware, Jesus was born, again, you can debate the time, but he was born in Bethlehem in the town of David, um, which is where David was as well. And so in that line, and in the shadow of Herod, one of Herod's many palaces called the Herodian, which was just a few miles away from Bethlehem. It was this crazy, amazing palace where Herod quite literally took the top off of a mountain and built a palace where he wanted one in the middle of the desert as his sort of uh, flight path should any uh, imperial power try to run him out. He would have some fortresses along the way. And in the shadow of that great power and oppression, Jesus is born. And the story of Matthew proceeds to tell us that after Jesus's birth, and again, if you've watched the Peanuts cartoon, or read any Christmas stuff. Hopefully we're cool here. After Jesus' birth, wise men come to Herod in Jerusalem, and they say, can you please tell us where we can find the one who was born king of the Jews? And this irks Herod immediately, because Herod is not Jewish. He's Idumean, and at best would be considered half Jewish. And most of the people of his day those who are Jews do not consider him king. They don't think he's the king of the Jews. He went to Rome to get appointed to be king of Judea. He didn't really have a kingdom. He had to come back and secure a lot of that through a lot of difficulty and pain and um, a lot of abuse. Um, And so he is not very happy to hear that somebody has been born king of the Jews. He's very upset about this. But he tells the wise men, oh, that's great. So glad you're here. Please go. And when you find him, come back and tell me so I can worship him too. Right? Of course, not true. So in in the middle of all that, Herod, is. it's clear he knows that there's only room for one king, and he's going to have to do something about this new threat that has arrived on the horizon in Bethlehem. Now, the wise men are warned in a dream by God to not return to Herod, that Herod does have wicked intent, and instead they flee and get out. They're warned to leave. And Joseph is also warned in a dream to pick up Mary and Jesus and leave, and they flee to Egypt so that, Matthew says, the prophecy can be fulfilled out of Egypt I have called my son. And they flee to get out because of Herod's murderous intent. And just after those verses then in Matthew, it tells us that Herod orders the death and the slaughter of all the boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding area from the ages of two and under. In the church calendar, this is called the Feast of the Holy Innocents and or the Holy Slaughter. It's, it, these children are considered by the church to be the first martyrs for Christ. And that festival or Feast of the Holy Innocents is December 28th every year. It was yesterday in the Catholic Church, in the Orthodox Church. It's today, December 29th. And every year then, as Christmas is celebrated, just three days after we have this beautiful, warm celebration of the birth of Jesus, the early church and following remembered the death of these young boys at the hand of Herod. Um, A 10th century manuscript recalls it. And tries to show the heartache that was happening there. 
And in the 1500s, a song was written, the Coventry Carol. this message is hope in the darkness. And I think it's something that we don't focus on too much when we sit outside of churches, when we sit in churches that don't keep the liturgical calendar. But when we are in the church that keeps that historical liturgical calendar, we're forced to contend with the entrance of Jesus into the world wrought a lot of pain for many people 
not long after as a result of Herod. So how do we understand Jesus' birth amidst this darkness and amidst the darkness that we often find ourselves in this world? I think many of us in the church were raised to think that, that Jesus and following Jesus meant that we would be safe, that nothing bad would ever happen to us, that um, we would have many blessings, that if we gave, right, we have that hashtag blessed thing we've talked about. Um, and we have often considered that Jesus' birth would do those things. But in fact, for these people in the story, Jesus' birth did not bring promises of safety or protection or security. What Jesus' birth means in this moment, in the light of this oppressive regime that was killing and slaughtering people all the time, long before Jesus and long after, Jesus' birth means that God is with us in the darkness. That when evil and oppression rises its head, that, that God is with us. That as Herod and Herod's cruel wickedness comes, Jesus comes into the midst of that darkness and shines a bit of hope. Finding hope in the darkness is a long tradition, a long biblical tradition. Isaiah does it right away, right? He said that the people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. In Isaiah 9. Now we read that as what great hope that Isaiah is talking about this long before the arrival of Jesus. And that is certainly one way to read that text prophetically, looking forward to the birth of Christ. But Isaiah was talking about it to a people that were going to be exiled soon. In fact, the prophets all have a very long tradition of saying things are deeply bad. Judgment is coming. Things are going to be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed and all this. But we also believe that hope is there too. And believing in hope in the midst of darkness and of deep, dark times is a long Jewish tradition. And for those of us grafted into this root, a long Christian tradition as well. Now, I find that in times of darkness, I often go to denial or despair. Anybody? All right. So when we do that, when we go to denial or despair, we find ourselves in the midst of sort of looking at all of the things around us that look so terrible, including in our current modern day, don't we? We would start to say, hey, we see a stabbing last night. We see Australia on fire. We see a bombing in Somalia. We see people huddled in freezing temperatures at the border. We see a shooting today at a church in Texas. We see constant destruction of this planet and this earth. And we can look at all of that and say, where is the hope? The darkness is too great. We can get paralyzed by that. We can deny it or despair, right? And so many of us like to just pretend none of this is happening. And we just Pretend it's not there. And I want to let you know that the powers and the principalities of oppression and evil would love for you and I to deny the injustice or to believe that it's hopeless, that you have no power, that there's no reason to act, and that you can't win. When we start to deny this injustice, I think a lot of us will say, well, hope in and of itself sort of sounds like denial, right? Have you ever found not here, but people maybe in your row, not you, just people in your row. People, when you say, well, things are really bad right now. And that person trying to give you some hopes, like, don't worry, it'll be better tomorrow. And you're like, I need somebody to not deny with me right now that it's bad. Right. But the truth is that hope 
in the biblical sense is not denial and it's not naive. Hope is realistic. Hope looks at what is present in this moment and says, I think it can be better. And I think it is supposed to be better. It doesn't deny what we're seeing. It just hopes that it can change. And the biblical authors give us a long tradition of that. The co-founder, Patrice Cullors of um, Black Lives Matter, she says this. Provide hope and inspiration for collective action to build collective power to achieve collective transformation rooted in grief and rage, but pointed towards vision and dreams. I like this, right? Provide hope that is not denying the reality. We don't have to pretend we're not sad. We don't have to pretend that we're not angry. We can still hold all of those and still push towards hope. Those things go together. Hope is not naive. It's not false. It's not fake. It's not just a hashtag blessed. Grief, doubt, anger, and hope all coexist. And they coexist in our biblical text. Grief, doubt, anger, and hope coexist in our Jesus story right at the very beginning. Now, for those of us who we don't do denial, we're like, it's just terrible. We move straight to despair, right? Everything is awful. It's terrible. There's no hope. I don't think I've ever remembered a time it's been worse. By the way, historically, it's been a lot worse than it is right now. We're all doing much better than anyone historically has ever done. But we move straight to despair, right? In fact, I'll, I'll tell on Kevin for just a moment. The other day, I said, oh, if we're going to recycle something, he goes, it's just, it's so awful, Danielle. I don't know if I can recycle anymore. He's so uh, aware of how we're destroying our planet that to throw a can away just makes him feel like it's just not enough, right? He, mo- he wants to move. It's like despair was starting to take over. It's like, what's this going to do? Because he's studied a lot, and so he's very aware of, like, these are giant, huge problems that need giant corporate solutions, and my recycling this can is not doing enough, right? But I did just hear from a little one who will be celebrating their fifth birthday coming up that her mom won't let her have balloons at the party because the plastic is not good for the animals, and we don't want to hurt the animals. And she gave me a very big lecture about how I can come to her birthday party but to not expect balloons. So she's prepared me for the disappointment already. She did a whole big thing. It was great. Okay, so when we move to despair then... We start to feel like there's just nothing we can do. But hope, according to this amazing author, Rebecca Solnit, if you've not read her work yet, hope is a gift you don't have to surrender. It's a power you don't have to throw away. We can contend with the realities that we see around us. We don't have to deny them. But we don't have to despair because hope is the power that we get to continue to hold in these circumstances. And nobody can take it away from us. It reminds me of that story in the gospel of Mark where the man comes and he says, my son is being thrown down into the fire. He's suffering these terrible seizures. Everything is awful. Like, can you please help? Your disciples haven't been able to help them. Help if you can. And Jesus says, if you can, right? Everything's possible for those who believe. And the father spouts right back. I believe, help my unbelief. Yes. Both those things at the same time. Hope contending with the fact that we also have doubt. Hope contending with the fact that we're still despairing. That we're still at a loss at moments. But hope lives right in that moment. It's actually one of the reasons why our church is called Spark. Because we've honestly said we did not start the fire. It's been always burning since the world's been turning. But we would like to simply light a small spark. And we can do that. 
because, you know, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Right? Anyone? Okay, thank you. Thanks for my, my Lutheran friends. Singer. Now, Jesus' birth shows up in the middle of this deep, dark time and shines light on the darkness. This oppressive foreign rule that is there has this power that is overwhelming for everyone there. And it threatens and it kills and it makes life difficult and it tries to destroy at every turn. And Jesus comes and confronts that power, but not in the way that we expect. As Jesus comes and he lives his life and he lays it down in service to many, he confronts power with service. He confronts power and violence with love. He confronts power by laying down his life. His answer to the violence is radical nonviolence. And it subverts the powers immediately. You see, this hope of Jesus changes everything. It changes everything in that moment. Suffering will continue, but it changes everything. And as the women went to the tomb to bury and take care of the dead, as the women went to the tomb expecting to find the body of Jesus and to tend to that tomb, instead, with their burial spices in hand, they found an empty tomb that confronted the powers of death itself. Not in the way they expected, not in the way they probably wanted, but a hope that confronted those powers of darkness. And in our Jesus story, even in the midst from the very beginning days of Herod's cruelty to the end with Pilate's cruelty and the the powers of the Roman Empire, we see that in these moments, a king is enthroned, not a threat, is not neutralized. They actually put king of the Jews up above that cross. And we read that and know full well the irony of that statement is that he is king of the Jews, that the king comes laying down his life, that the enthronement comes through this sacrifice and that the victory is found in the tomb, in the empty tomb. And this changes everything. This hope of the resurrection changes everything for those who are walking along the road to Emmaus and they are despairing. They're saying, don't you know what's been happening? Can you even believe what we've gone through? Everything is a mess. It's a disaster. We thought he was going to be the one to restore Israel, and he's not. And then Jesus breaks the bread, and they finally can see that it is through the death and the burial and the resurrection that everything's now changed. And on that road to Emmaus, as they come to that understanding, they still can't believe what they've heard or what they've experienced. Those roads that the Roman Empire laid, start to connect back to the powers of Rome and will eventually spread throughout the world this story of hope. Hope invites rebirth. It invites us to come into these dark places and say there is a way to start again, a new beginning, a new story that can be told. So much so, don't we see this in the Apostle Paul? He is, the Apostle Paul was Saul or Paulus, of Tarsus, a Roman citizen, a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin, proud. He had his career path on track, right? He was taking notes. He was sitting at the feet of Rabbi Gamliel. This guy was incredible. Everything was as he got it all slated, right? Exactly the career path ahead. He did everything he needed to do to ascend that corporate ladder. He stood by and held the coats at the stoning of Stephen. And here he is on the road to Damascus, ready 
to go and continue on that career path. And he meets the risen Jesus and something happens in him that changes everything. It's a rebirth, a new story that he's going to be telling and a story that as a result of his rebirth and new story, we're here today. Because he continues then to not pursue power or empire, but he pursues a risen savior who calls him to lay down his life for others. And he recognizes that it is actually the suffering of Christ that sets us free and knows that because of that, it'll be his call to, to also suffer. Hope in the darkness. Right in the beginning of our Jesus story in Matthew. Hope meeting in the darkness. So why do we tell this story every year? Why every year, pretty much without fail at Spark, at least when I get to preach this weekend, do we talk about these holy innocents who are killed? I think we tell this story. Actually, it was just, did anyone catch? There was an an op-ed even about it in the New York Times this last week, the bloody fourth day of Christmas. And Wheaton professor, Dr. Esau McCauley says this, this feast suggests that things that God cares about most do not take place in the centers of power. The truly vital events are happening in refugee camps, detention centers, slums, and prisons. The Christmas story is set not in a palace surrounded by dignitaries, but among the poor and humble whose lives are always subject to forfeit. That's why we tell this story every year. And also because remembering produces hope. We tell the Jesus story every year. We've all told the Christmas story. We've told the birth of Jesus, the light of the world, shining into darkness, coming here. And let's also not deny the reality of those days, which there was an oppressive ruler who also sought to kill Jesus. And many innocents were killed in pursuit of that. And those two things together still will produce hope. Uh, Theologian Dr. Walter Brueggemann says that memory always produces hope in the same way that amnesia produces despair. When you and I can sit and remember what it is that God has done for us and remember what it is that we have made it through, that it was not that long ago that people were having to riot in the streets of America for the right to vote. It's not that long ago that women were not permitted in America, to hold property. It's not that long ago that persons were denied the right to marry in our land. It is not that long ago that massive amounts of disease plagued our world. And when we can remember the good and the bad and the challenging, we can start to remember that we have made some progress and that God is still shining light in the darkness in the midst of this time today too. And that even when things are deeply dark, there's hope. Mary sings her amazing joyous song that Pastor Omer spoke of just a few weeks ago prior to knowing what Jesus would do. She's able to talk about toppling rulers from their thrones and sending the rich away empty and lifting up the poor. She's able to sing this hopeful song, even though she is presently being set aside, I'm sure, by so many who did not believe her story. Facing what it would be to be an unwed mother. And she can sing this song 
in the midst of what must have been a very dark and scary time, she sings of hope. We continue to remember and tell the story every year because the story gives us a taste of the right side up kingdom. It gives us a small taste of what it is to know that the shepherds were the first ones visited by the angels. These lowly shepherds out in a field, and they were like, hey, you guys, you get to hear this good news. We're not going to the powers or the kings or the wealthy or the clean, right? We're going to you because we want you to know. And we get these tastes of of God setting the kingdom to right. We revel in the promise of hope. At Spark, every single Sunday, we say a prayer of hope. When we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer of hope. That's a prayer of hope. God, let your kingdom come here. And together, as followers of Jesus, our actions betray our deepest hopes. I think here at Spark, we spend some time on some fairly heavy subjects. Just this year alone, we've tried to tackle detention at the border, what it means to be an American, racism, racism in the church, issues of oppression for our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters, trying to find reconciliation, trying to tackle issues like climate change and how do we wrestle with all that as followers of Jesus. And it can sometimes feel like you go to the church of Debbie Downer, right? <laughs> that we are just spending a lot of time here talking about the very hard and difficult things. But I want to tell you the reason why we do that is because we're very hopeful people. Honestly, we talk about all of this because we believe it can be different. We are engaged in hope. When we believe that injustice, poverty, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, pain, violence are the beacons calling us to God's transformative work in this world. We look at the darkness and we say, yes, I have work to do. We are called to be hopeful people. And we talk about all these hard, difficult things because we believe in Jesus. Because we believe that we are called to bring more of the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And that we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have hope when we look into racism, when we look into xenophobia, when we look into white nationalism. We have hope when we hear the news of last night and today. We have hope when we see the injustice at the border. And we keep running and knocking like that persistent widow because we've been told to do so. We've been told that we have a God that steps into the midst of darkness, that steps into the midst of oppressive regime and says, let there be light. And that light shines in the darkness. Don't let anybody tell you go to the Debbie Downer church. We talk about these things because we believe it can be different. And we believe that as followers of Jesus, we are called to work hard to bring in that kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, just one last note, y'all. Hope requires patience. And this is nothing that we're good at. 
particularly in our instantaneous society, right? I shared that Facebook post. Why didn't everyone agree with me immediately, right? I went and protested at the border. I went and protested at the corner. We had the event at Spark. Why didn't everybody start listening to our, you know, how come we're not all recycling, right? What are we doing? Like hope requires patience. So let's go back to our Jesus story for the birth. This is from Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph are bringing the offering for the poor to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate Jesus on the eighth day. And as they go, they meet Simeon, who's waiting, and they meet a prophet named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. Let's say he died when she was in her early 20s. Okay, so she's lived as a widow for 60 60 years. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She waited 60 years. Hope requires patience. She waited 60 years for the redemption of Israel to show up. She waited 60 years to meet this baby. She waited. And I'm sure in those moments, there were those that suggested she was in denial or that she was just in massive despair, but her hope continued and it persevered in the midst of the darkness. Be like Anna. Be patient. Keep working. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. We're going to invite up the band and we're going to continue worshiping God through communion where we continue to remember with great hope what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago And we look forward to that great banquet to come. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome. The table is open.